please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Sojourn. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. All right. A couple of excited people. Good. It's good to, uh, good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, grateful just to be able to worship with you through song and now open up God's word. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into prayer and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask that through our time now in your word, first and foremost, that you would be glorified. Lord, may you be exalted today. May we herald your name this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as we seek to do that, as I seek to do that by preaching your word this morning, that your spirit would work in and through the preaching of your word, that you'd bring about conviction, that you'd bring about transformation today in every heart and mind in this room. Not because of the eloquence of speech or the wisdom of words, but because we are preaching Christ and him crucified. Our living Savior is giving us his living word to transform our lives. And so we ask God that you would do that this morning. Use your word to lead us today. That we might be conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ our King. And so we ask God that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, and that you would bless this time. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. A question that has been asked for a really, really, really long time by a lot of different people is why are we here? Why are we here? In other words, why do we exist? What, if there any is any, meaning and purpose is there to life. And there's been a lot of different explanations and answers given over time to try and explain, to try and give the reason for those things. And and really, I think the motivation of all of those answers has been a desire to give people peace, give them peace of mind. And the same question, though, can be asked of a group of people or an organization or a church. Why are we here? Why does Sojourn Church exist? This church was planted a little more than five and a half years ago. And the reason we exist as a church has been the same since we began. And you can read this statement every time you walk in here on a Sunday morning. Sojourn Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who know the gospel, live out the implications of the gospel, and share the message of the gospel. And really, at the end of the day, every local church should answer that question of why we exist with pretty much the same answer. 
maybe worded a little bit differently, phrased a little bit differently, but the answer at its core really should be the same for just this simple reason, because this is Jesus's church. And Jesus has told us both who we are and what we're to be about. And as God has been kind and gracious and patient with us over these last five and a half years, as we have strived, imperfectly though, but as we've strived to be faithful to Jesus' calling for our church, the pastors of Sojourn have been thinking and praying and discussing with one another what God wants us to do as we look ahead to the next five years in the life of our church. The simple answer to that really is, well, to keep doing the things we've been doing, to keep striving to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to do, to that statement above that we just read about why we exist. But two additional questions kind of emerged for us out of our praying and our thinking and our discussing. The first question is, okay, we know know why we exist, but how do we continue to exist? How will we continue to exist as a church? And the second question tied to those first two is, out of all of that, what do we hope to see God do in and through our church as we strive to be faithful to the chief shepherd? Last month at our covenant member meeting, we rolled out some initial answers to those questions culminating in what we've been calling Vision 2020, our confident hopes. And so we've prayed and we've thought and said, God, what do you want us to be? And we've kind of listed all of these things out and we're really excited. We're encouraged by what we believe God is calling us to, what he's cultivating within this little church here in Fairfax to be about. And we believe that God, all of these things align with the heart of our God and they're only possible by his power. And so over the next five Sundays, We're going to dive into these things and begin to look at how God's word guides us and directs us in relation to these things. And so we're going to talk about why we exist. We're going to talk about how we will continue to exist and begin to walk through our confident hopes. And something we said to our members at that meeting and something I'll say again today and we need to keep saying is this is the beginning of a conversation. It's the beginning of a conversation for all of us because all of us together are striving to do these things, that we might be faithful. It's not just the job of the pastors in this church to carry these things forward, but all of us together to work together towards this end. This is also a journey. It's going to be a journey that we're going to be on for a while over the next few years. And we are beginning that journey together today, corporately as we gather, but we're going to come back and we're going to preach on it again in the fall and come back in the spring and preach on it again next year. And we're going to talk about it in community together in between, all along the way. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two of the clearest places in Scripture that Jesus gives us as to why we exist and what we're to do. And today, we're going to start by looking at a short text where Jesus tells us what matters most when it comes to how we live our lives. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this today with you and throughout the weeks and months ahead and hopeful for what God will do in us as he seeks to work through us. So let's jump into Matthew 22 this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. The text that was read this morning, what's going on kind of context-wise for this, is Jesus has been doing ministry for some time now. In fact, this takes place after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem in what has often been called Palm Sunday. And so Jesus has been ministering for a while. He's been teaching for a while, calling people to follow him, calling people to the kingdom of God. 
and while many people have begun to follow Jesus, and, and that's what being a disciple really is at its core, is about following Jesus. Jesus being Lord and Jesus being King and us orienting our lives around who he is, following him, seeking him, being faithful to him. And so many people at this point have begun to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus, have been drawn closer to Jesus. While that's happening, though, there are others that are not very fond of Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's teaching. They don't like what he's saying. And ironically enough, the the largest group of people who don't like Jesus are the religious leaders of the day. The very people who have God's word, who prize themselves on their knowledge of God's word, who love God's word, who know so much about God's word, are not excited about the one to whom God's word points to. And so they've been trying to trap Jesus. They've been trying to trick Jesus into doing something or saying something that will discredit him and his ministry so that people will stop following him and follow them instead. Now, right before our text today, there's a religious group called the Sadducees, and they've challenged Jesus on the resurrection of the dead, something they didn't believe in. But we see in verse 34, right at the beginning there, that it says that Jesus has silenced them, meaning that he gave them an answer that they couldn't really respond back to. And so then we see another religious group that's present, the Pharisees. I mean, they seek to take a crack at Jesus as well. The Pharisees are a group of people who cared a whole lot about God's word. They cared a whole lot about God's law. And so they've heard that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, and so they gather together to strategize. It's like they call a a family meeting together, an organizational meeting, where they have to come up with a game plan. Okay, what are we going to do now? How can we come at Jesus now? And so they create this game plan. Okay, here's the idea. We're going to send one of our lawyers to ask Jesus a question about the law. Now, a lawyer here is not exactly what we think of in American culture. It's not someone who went to law school per se. It's not someone who got their JD and now represents a client to either defend or uphold the law on their behalf. But all lawyers do have something in common. They're supposed to be experts in the law. Experts in the law and whatever the law might be. So a U.S. tax lawyer should be an expert in U.S. tax law. So here, in this situation, a lawyer for the Pharisees is expected to be an expert in the law of God. He knows it backwards and forwards. He is thoroughly versed in the law of God. Now, what is law? At its most basic level, the law is a system of rules that are created and enforced through social or governmental institutions to regulate behavior. So when it comes to God's law, as we see in the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is is just a, a laying out of God's law. It's God's commands for how to live in a fallen and broken world in relation to him and in relation to others. But there was a problem, not with the law, but with how the Pharisees were interpreting and implying the law and the purpose of the law. They believed that it was their doing that led to their being. It was their doing that led to their being. In other words, it was by seeking to keep the law of God that, would ex- that God would accept them, that he would allow them to be in his presence. 
And so as they sought, and because they believed that, what they sought to do is to uphold it perfectly, to carry out every aspect of the law, and they called other people to do that. They even created kind of sub-laws or things around the law to try to describe and make sure that everybody knew exactly what they needed to do to be able to fulfill all of the law. But the thing is, they believed that it was actually possible for them to do it. And in that, they missed something crucial. See, the law of God pointed to the fact that God's people could not obey God's law perfectly. Romans 7 tells us that we come to understand our sin and the fact that all of us have rebelled against a holy and righteous God because of the law. It's like a spotlight on our lives, shining brightly on us, exposing us, showing everything about us. It's like an x-ray machine that shows the depravity of our hearts. And through the law, no one could obtain righteousness, which means no one could be in right relationship with God. Because God is holy and right. When we sin, we're separated from God because he can't be in relationship with us. So what the law does is it shows us that we can't obtain that righteousness on our own, but instead what it actually shows is that we have no righteousness of our own, which means that we are desperately in need of a mediator. We're desperately in need of a redeemer, someone to do something about our problem. So all that being said, the lawyer steps forward as a spokesman for the Pharisees, and he asks Jesus this question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? See, in light of their understanding, the Pharisees' understanding of the law, the Pharisees want to know which law out of the 613 recorded in the Old Testament did Jesus, this great teacher that everybody seemed to love, that everybody seemed to want to follow, which one did he think mattered most? See, in the Pharisees' mind, they thought this is an easy trap for Jesus because I'm asking him to pick one out of 613, which means immediately once he identifies one, I can critique the ones he didn't. Why didn't you pick this one, Jesus? Do you really think this is better than this one? But as Jesus often does, he flips the question on its head, and he goes to the heart of the matter by making it abundantly clear what matters most as we seek to relate to God and one another. Jesus declares in verse 37 and 38, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, this is a quotation from Jesus. he's, He's referring back to something in the Old Testament. So this would have been very familiar to the Pharisees, to those that were listening. It comes out of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. And they would have been very familiar with it because it was something that Jewish followers of God would often, would, they would memorize and they would recite often. In fact, it was required that twice a day they would say this in the morning and the evening. They would come back and they would recite this from memory every day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You and I are what we call psychosomatic beings. We're body and soul. We're embodied souls. And so what this command is saying to you and to I is that we are called to love God with the totality of who we are as a human being, both physically and spiritually. Everything about us is meant to love God. Now, why this might have been slightly unexpected for the listeners, it wouldn't have been shocking to the Pharisees that he quoted this command because it was extremely important to them and they believed that they were doing this already. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He has more to say. Verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this verse also would have been very familiar to them because it was also given in the law in Leviticus chapter 19. And Jesus has already mentioned this as a part of his ministry. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus references this. Now when we talk about love of neighbor, we're talking about seeking the greatest good for that person. And a neighbor here isn't about the person living next door or the person that lives above you in your apartment complex, though that person might be one of the hardest people to love, if, especially if they're noisy. Really, neighbor love here, what he's talking about is anyone you come in contact with. Any person you come in contact with. But the striking thing about saying it now is that he says it's like the first command. So here they are, probably trying to think through this a little bit. They're, they're pondering what Jesus is saying, contemplating it, but Jesus continues on. He gives a profound statement in verse 40. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, verse 39 and 40 are like kind of a one-two combo punch. The first punch is unique addition to what they've been thinking, but it's the second punch of verse 40 that's the KO. All of the law, which the Pharisees care so much about, and all of the, that the prophets say, who they revere so much, Jesus said, depends on these two things, love for God and love for others. What we said before, Jesus isn't haphazard with his words. He's precise and he's particular with what he says. So why does he say this? What's he seeking to communicate? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. We see that earlier in the book of Matthew. Jesus declares that to be true, meaning he didn't come to say this law Rip it up, worthless, let's throw it away. No, he came to fulfill the law, to live out everything that the law demands and requires. So he can't be saying that he's getting rid of the law by saying these things. He also isn't saying here that the love for God and love for others is the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying, what he's communicating to the Pharisees and to us is if you want to live an obedient life before a holy God, It begins and ends with love for God and love for others. It's the means and the motivation. It's the foundation for every command that God gives. And so Jesus is declaring the priority of love in the life of a disciple. The priority of love in the life of the disciple. Now, this call for loving isn't what I would call a Beatles ethic to love. Right? All you need is love. Kind of you sing that song, it's like just happy. All you need is love. Everything's fine. Just, just love. We'll be good. And right? We see that sometimes in our culture, just kind of a, uh, hey, just love everybody kind of culture or a love wins the day mantra. But it, oftentimes it's, it's disconnected from a core belief, from a core principle, from a core authority. If it's disconnected from a core authority that actually tells us to love and shows us what love is, what it is to love, to be loved, then it's really love unhinged, and then it's just subjective love. See, to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves doesn't mean that we define how to do that, how to love them. When we define what love looks like, 
and how we will do it, we dismiss the authority of the one who told us and called us to in the first place. And throughout the scriptures, God has told us what it looks like to love him, what it looks like to love others. We see that in the law of God. And when Jesus comes, he, he reiterates the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount, calling us to obedience to God. But right here, he boils it down to these two simple statements. Love him, but do so with your whole self. Love others and do so like you love yourself. Now, I know some people, and probably some people here today, don't have a love for self. You don't have a high view of yourself. Uh, you have rather a low, a low view, a low regard for yourself. So let me encourage you briefly now, and hopefully more later, that you do have high regard. But it's not because of the way you look. It's not because of your intellect or your wealth or your ability. It's not because of your ethnicity or your gender, but because you are made in the image of God. And because you're made in the image of God, you are inherently valuable. In fact, you're the pinnacle of God's creation because you bear his image. So if you struggle with that, hear that this morning and be encouraged that you have value before God and before others. But for most of us, my guess would be that we have a rather high view of ourselves. That's not a problem for us. It's not difficult for us to regard ourselves highly. It comes very naturally for us. And that is the problem. Let me ask you a question. What do you think when you hear these two commandments? Love God and love others. What comes to mind for you? These two commands that Jesus says are the greatest command and one that is like it. What comes to mind for you? Do you think, okay, seems simple enough. I can do this. Or maybe you think at least I I can start working on doing this. If that's really what it's all about, just those two things, and I, I, I think it sounds good. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, sounds good, but man, I just need some specifics. I need to know, what, what am I supposed to do in order to do those two things, to love God and love others? Just give me some specifics that I can wrap my mind around. Can I put some handles on it? So I know how to do this in the way that Jesus intends for me to do it because I don't want to mess up because I want to faithfully follow Jesus. But do you realize what it is that Jesus has done when he has said that these are the two greatest commands and that all the law of the prophets depend on these two things, love God and love others? Do you, do you recognize, do you realize what Jesus has done in that? He has told you to do something you cannot do. You cannot do this. Brothers and sisters, this should be utterly crushing for you. For Jesus to say, the greatest thing, the most important thing, the thing that matters most in your life. Love God with your whole being and love others like you love yourself. Listen, if I go to the gym and someone tells me to, to get on the bench press and bench press 300 pounds, now I, <laughs> I, could, I could look at that and I know the mechanics of lifting that weight. I know how it works and I know you got to balance and you got to get all that down. I could lay down, I could look at it and think, okay, I, I know how many plates are on there? I know how this is on the words. Okay, I got this. It may be hard, but I've seen other people do it. I've got this. And maybe, maybe I could get the bar up off the rack. Maybe. But it wouldn't take long, maybe a nanosecond, for that to come crashing down in my chest, maybe my throat, and crush me. Love God with my whole self? That doesn't mean most of the time. 
or some of the time. Does it mean on Sundays when I listen to a sermon, I lift my hands and my voice in praise to this great and awesome and transcendent, holy, righteous, unchanging, almighty, holy God. It means every nanosecond of every single day of your life. That there's never a time when this command is not in force. There's no aspect or inch of who you are as a person that's not called to do this. Like that you can love God with your mind really well, but not your heart. And that's close enough. Or you can love God with your soul, but not with your body. And that's close enough. He's calling us to love God with every ounce of your being, physically and spiritually, and to do it always. And if that's not crushing enough, there's a second command that's like the first Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, meaning everyone you come in contact with. Love them as you love yourself. And again, Jesus gives no caveat to this. There's no reprieve from this. For when this command is not enforced, there's no person that you'll come in contact with that's excluded from this. As if to say, God, it says to you, it's okay to love everyone, but accept that person. You don't have to love them because they look different than you. Because they come from somewhere different than you because they have more than you do or less than you do. Let's just be honest, because they just annoy you or frustrate you. There's no caveat to it. If we look at these commands and we think, I got this. I can do this. It's just like me trying to lift that weight that I cannot lift. But what it'll instead do is point out my inability and my weakness. See, in that moment, we become just like the Pharisees. You cannot do this on your own. And that is at the very core of what Jesus is driving at for the Pharisees and what he's driving at for you and me. See, church self is at the center of our lives. There's so much self in our world, in our lives. There's self-confidence. I need to have confidence within myself. There's self-image. I need to think highly of the way I look, my self-image and the way I appear. There's self-esteem. I need to think well of myself. Self-sufficiency, self-actualization, self-worth. If we're down on ourselves, then it's self-pity or we're self-critical or we're self-condemning. We can live self-indulgent lives. There's a magazine called Self. And then there's the infamous Selfie. See, what this command is doing is continually confronting and overwhelming our tendency, our proclivity to self. What actually comes most naturally to us is not love for God. It's certainly not love for others, but love for self that supersedes and trumps all other loves. And that is at the very heart of our rebellion against God. That's what we call sin. And so Jesus here is calling us to do something intense and and seemingly radical. He's calling us to live differently than the way the world lives. He's calling us and showing us a picture of kingdom life. And it seems simple in some ways, yet it's so complex and it's so challenging. Because here's the reality for you and for me. You cannot have true love for God until you have received love from God. And oh, what good news. Oh, what good news of lavish love that there is for you today. 
Listen to these words from John 3.16. We read this earlier this morning. For God so loved the world. He loved people from every tribe, every language, every nation that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Another translation says has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God and so we are. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. For what purpose? So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. It's not doing before being. No, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. As one scholar says, to be loved by God is to know ourselves truthfully. Truthfully, and that can be scary. But the love of God is twofold. While he exposes us for who we really are, he provides rescue and redemption for who we really are. See, in the height of your rebellion, God sent his son to live a perfect life of love for God and for others, obeying all of God's commands. And he sent his son to take on the punishment for your sin and your selfishness. Romans 5 tells us, while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. That's crazy. While you were rebelling against him, running the other direction, Christ came to rescue you. What you deserve is death. What awaits you is God's righteous wrath for loving yourself more than you love God, for loving yourself more than you love others. But Jesus experienced that death for you. Jesus took on that wrath that you deserve. So Jesus and Jesus alone saves you from your inability to love God and your inability to love others. Listen, in order to experience that salvation, you have to confess your sin and selfishness and place your faith in Jesus and his sacrifice for your sin. Confessing and declaring that Jesus is your only hope. Do you believe that? Have you done that? Or are you trying to earn God's favor by trying to love him, by trying to love others? See, with God, you are both fully known and fully loved. And that is a glorious reality. Why are we here? Friends, we are here both as individuals created in the image of God and as a church to do one thing, to glorify God. To give him all glory and praise and honor that is due him. And how do we do that? We do that when we love him and love others more than we love ourselves. But in order for you or me to actually be able to do this, something extraordinary has to happen. Something supernatural has to happen to unearth and and to reorient everything about us. We need a death and a resurrection. And when Jesus comes to bear on your life, that's exactly what happens to you. Listen to these two texts. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died when Jesus died. And he says, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those, check, catch this, why did he die for you? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He goes on in verse 17 to say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's, he's recreated you, putting away the old. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our doing then flows from our being. You're a new creation, living because Jesus rose again from the grave, having paid for all of your sin. John goes on in 1 John chapter 4 to say this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Sojourn, God has shown us what this command looks like. And love of God and love of others, then in our life, is a lifelong pursuit of crucifying our love of self. Repenting of that, believing in Christ, and repeating that over and over and over again. Because tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're going to choose self over God. You're going to choose self over others. Praise God that he's lavished his grace on us through Christ. That we can repent and turn away from that and turn again to love God and love others. That is at the heart of following Jesus. That is at the heart of becoming more like Jesus. As we look to him who lived and loved perfectly. Now why does this matter for our church? Well, I hope clear because Jesus calls us to do it. But, but why am I talking about this in light of why we exist as a church and, and why or what our hopes are for the future of our church? Well, simply this, if we are going to be a church who glorifies God by making disciples, then love of God and love of others must be at the center of everything we do. What it means to be a disciple is to know Jesus and follow Jesus who told us that what matters most is who we love and how we love. Everything else flows from that. And the simple yet stark reality is this. We cannot make disciples if we are not being disciples. So what does love of God look like for someone who has been redeemed by God? What does it actually look like in our lives? It can mean and look like many things, but let me boil it down to two things for us this morning. First is this, it's worshiping him and him alone. The height of our rebellion against God is that we've worshiped other things. We've worshiped the creation instead of the creator. But the first commandment in the Ten Commandments tells us to have no other gods before the one true living God. It's giving worship to him, ascribing worth and value to him. And worship comes for God through awe of who God is. But see, awe of God, which leads to our love of God, is not simply about what he does for us, but who he is, his character, his nature. But I think the problem for us often is that we don't reflect on or learn more about who he is. We have, as one author says, an awe problem. We're enamored by so many other things besides God. And so we have to learn more about who our God is. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We can go outside and be in awe of God that he's created this world that we get to live in. And Psalm 19 goes on to tell us that it's God's word that revives our soul. 
that enlightens our eyes and encourages our hearts. We learn more about who this God is to behold him and bow our hearts and our lives and worship to him. Which leads to the second way we can love God with our whole being. The second thing is obedience. Obedience actually matters. Jesus says to us, follow me. And he, he actually meant that. It wasn't just a euphemism. It wasn't something for him just to throw out that sounded rhetorically good. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, he meant take up your cross and follow me. There's no hidden meaning in that. Obedience actually matters for your life. God's commands are for your good. They're for your joy. They're not suggestions for your life. As I heard a pastor say this week, God's love language is obedience. Not to earn his favor, but a display of the love we have for him. All of God's commands are for your good. There's freedom in following our God. And it's actually only when you have a heart changed and transformed by God's love given to you through Christ that you're actually able to love God. And then because you love him, that you're actually able to follow his commands. See, as redeemed men and women, bought with the precious blood of Christ, forgiven and set free. When we strive to love God through our worship, when we strive to love God through our obedience, what happens is we take ourselves out of focus. Our heart and our eyes are set on him, on the one alone who deserves honor and glory and praise forever and ever. And when we're not in focus, then we can actually love those around us as we have been loved. See, love of God flows to love of others. So what does love of neighbor look like for someone who's been redeemed by God? We could take this and we could start running with it like, okay, I'm going to start loving people. But if we just focus on loving others separate from what Jesus has called us to do from his lordship, then we can drift towards the way the world seeks to love others, which is just kind of sort of a sentimental kind of love. Like I love pizza and I love you. <laughs> right? It's just like, well, cool. We, yeah, we love, love you, love you. And that's it. It's just kind of sentimental. But the love Jesus calls us to, it's hard. The love Jesus calls us to, it is difficult at times. I mean, look at, look at 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably been to a wedding or two where this is read. This is intense. If I speak in the tongues of men, Paul says, and of angels, but have not what? Love. I am a noisy gong. Who wants to be that? a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Again, if you think, okay, I can do this, then you're missing the point. This is challenging. It's, it's laying down your rights and your life for one another like Jesus did. It, it looks like considering the needs and preferences of others above your own, like Jesus did. It's being willing to stand up for and stand with those who are in need, 
like Jesus did. It means loving people that look different than you. It means loving people that are different than you. Loving people that come from different places, from different backgrounds. It means addressing and raising up your voice towards issues of injustice and oppression. See, things like racial injustice are love-your-neighbor issues. So if you think that you, as a follower of Jesus, don't need to speak into that, and we as a church don't need to repent of ways that we haven't done that well, then we're just taking what Jesus says is like the first great commandment and just trashing it. Let's not be like the Pharisees who understood the command but were looking for opportunities where it didn't apply to them. As I heard one pastor say this week, let's not ask who is my neighbor but am I being a good neighbor? Love differently than the world does. But here's the deal, church. For others, for us to love others outside and all around us, it starts with us loving one another well. If we're not loving one another in a Jesus-like way, then we will not love those around us who don't yet know Jesus. That means we have to deal with conflict with one another because conflict will happen. We hurt one another either intentionally or unintentionally so. We need to deal with it in a gracious way and a patient way, being quick to forgive and believe the best in one another, willing to overlook offenses. It means striving to maintain the unity that Jesus has purchased for us at all costs. At all costs. The gospel demands that from you. That you would look around the people in this room and in this church and say, I am going to fight for unity with you because I believe it matters. It means creating a context of love with one another where there is no I love you but. Instead, it's I love you and. And because I love you, I want to help you and I want to encourage you and I want to remind you of who you are in Christ and I want to Remind you and have you remind me that Jesus is better. I want to help you and encourage you and I need you to help me and encourage me so that I not, might, might not be swayed by the things of this world but might continually walk in faithfulness to my God and King. I love you and I'm not going anywhere. See, I believe, when I believe that I am a beloved child of God, then when I look at you as my sisters and brothers in Christ, I can treat you as a beloved child of God. All of us in need of grace. All of us in need of mercy. All of us works in progress as God restores his image in us. And as we seek to do that, what it does is it doesn't pro promote pride, but humility. See, this call and command impacts every aspect of how you live and orient your life and relate to one another. And if we are not loving one another, if we're not willing to serve one another and bear with one another and reconcile with one another, if we're okay keeping each other at an arm's distance, that when we're hurt or we hurt others, that we're not willing to engage with each other in a way that seeks reconciliation, then maybe we haven't actually experienced the love of God. Maybe you're not actually saved. Now, I know that's intense, so why do I say that? Because Jesus tells us that. John 13, he tells us that our love for one another testifies to the world that we are disciples of Jesus. That the gospel is actually real. And that you've believed it. That you've been redeemed and transformed by it. Simply put, if you say you love God and do not have love for one another, then you are a liar. And the reality is you don't actually love either. I often pray with my kids. 
that God would help them and help me to love God and love others more than ourselves. Just that simple thing. God, would you help us to love you and love others more than we love ourselves? That is not a throwaway prayer. That's not just something pithy to say with my kids. That is a foundational and desperate cry for grace and power to be who God has called us to be and to live out that which everything else he has called me hangs on because I can't do it on my own. I can't love you like God has called me to love you apart from his grace, and I can't love God apart from his grace. This is why this is at the very center of our discipleship, of following Jesus, and it's why I'm talking about it today. In light of talking about why we exist as a church and what God is calling us to as a church, if we miss this, we miss everything. So where might you need to repent today? Be quick with your repentance and then rest in the lavish love and grace that has been given to you in Jesus, our Lord. Jesus shows us and teaches us what kingdom love looks like and it's something he shows us by his own life and empowers us to do when he is at the center of our lives. That's why at Sojourn, our first core value as a church is Christ. It's our first core value. Christ must be central to our life. We have to follow him in everything we do. And our last core value is conformity to Christ. That God would be transforming us and making us more like Jesus. And sandwiched in between those two core values is being a community on mission and caring for one another. And it all is rooted back in the great commandment and one that is like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has done this for us. Now may we as his people, by his resurrecting grace, go and do likewise. Today we come to the communion table because Jesus showed neighbor love to us. While we were still enemies, he came to die for us. His perfect love for God allowed him to lay down his perfect life for us in order to love us perfectly, taking on our sin and shame and reconciling us to God. And so this morning, as we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us, and as we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us, may we be spiritually nourished and refreshed by the power and presence of Christ to be and do all that he's called us to be and do. His disciples We're seeking to glorify God by making disciples. So church, come forward this morning. And as you eat that bread and drink that cup, that's love being screamed at you this morning. It's what Christ has done for you, has spoken over you. Hear that, hear love spoken over you this morning. And let's rejoice together in what God has given to us in and through his son. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm so glad you're here this morning. I'm not sure your experience with church or Maybe it's the first time you've ever been to a church or maybe you've had bad experience with a church. Man, I hope that what you see is we're a bunch of imperfect people, but we have a perfect Savior. So this morning, I would just ask you not to come forward to take communion, but to hang out in your seat, think through what I've said this morning, but I want you to take Christ. I want you to turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus, repent, turn away from that and trust in him for what he's done for you so that you can be reconciled to God. And then be a part of this messy family together as we seek to be faithful to what he's called us to. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or follow Jesus, then that's why we're here. So let somebody around you know so that we can journey with you in that.
For those of you that will come forward, come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a small cup to drink. And the love, what Jesus has done for you, will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you this morning for your lavish love. God, it should be mind-blowing for us that And God, that even just rolls off my tongue so easily. You've lavished love on us. The God of all creation, holy and perfect and altogether righteous and glorious, has loved me, has loved the people in this room. It's an amazing reality. God, you didn't have to do that, but that's who you are. So Lord, thank you for loving us enough to send your son to rescue us from all of our selfishness, all of our sin. Lord, help us to rest in that grace, rest in that reality. And God, I pray that for us as a church and every individual that makes up this church, that you would help us by your power, by your grace to love you and love others more than we love ourselves. We ask this and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.